And so the way I looked at it was this. We are alive for 30,000 days. Most of us, when asked what were the highlights of your life, we will point to a series of, what, half a dozen, maybe a dozen sort of big moments. In this tiny, short, fragile life, it's actually a waste to think of only five or 10 things as the poignant highlights of your life, when in fact, every single one of those 30,000 days is full of a thousand tiny, simple pleasures that actually give you joy and happiness. This is Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. Things were not going well for Neil Pasricha. He came home from work one day, and his wife told him she no longer loved him. Around that same time, Neil's best friend took his own life. Neil needed something to lift his spirits, something to remind him every day that there was something good in the world. And that's when Neil started his blog, 1,000 Awesome Things. At the end of each day, he wrote about one little awesome thing from life. Today, Neil has written several awesome books, including The Book of Awesome, and Awesome is Everywhere. His blog, 1000 Awesome Things, was named Best Blog in the World two years in a row from the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. Neil is the director of the Institute of Global Happiness, and he has a fantastic podcast, which is called Three Books on which he's interviewed titans such as Judy Bloom, Malcolm Gladwell, and David Sedaris. And Neil's new book is You Are Awesome. It's all about resilience. And in this conversation, you are going to learn. Neil says you never know when you're making art who in your own personal life is going to resonate with it. What was it that surprised Neil about the difference between running a blog and running a podcast? Neil also says... No one should be embarrassed of any book ever that they're reading. What is book shame? And why does Neil feel that book shame needs to be wiped off the face of the planet? And Neil also says, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. And then he admits that he stole that from Game of Thrones. Hear the fascinating science behind how reading cultivates emotional intelligence. Here's Neil Pasricha. I am here with Neil Pasricha, and Neil, you have written the book of awesome, the book of even more awesome, the book of holiday awesome. Awesome is everywhere. You had a little interlude with the happiness equation, and now you have this new book, you are awesome. How did you get so obsessed with awesomeness? <laughs> Honestly, David, it was because I wasn't feeling awesome. It was, uh, I was in my late 20s. My wife told me she did not want to be married to me anymore. And that happened right about mm. the same time as my closest friend very sadly took his own life after a long and, and severe bout of mental illness. And so on a whim one night, I started a blog called 1000awesomethings.com. I started it in 10 minutes. I literally Googled, I literally Googled, that was a weird pronunciation of the word Googled. I literally Googled how to start a blog, clicked the I'm feeling lucky button and, and headed over to WordPress, never been to WordPress before. I didn't know what I had to really do that. And I started this blog. And so it just became a little place for me for the next 1000 straight weekdays for me to write down something that would make my brain just a tiny bit happier while I was sort of spinning. 
So I started writing about, you know, fat baseball players because they give us hope. And I started writing about finding $5 in your old coat pocket, you know, because it's like free money. <laughs> I started writing about flipping to the cold side of the pillow in the middle of the night. And as these essays grew a little bit longer and over the years, a little bit more meaningful, that original blog took off. It spiked in popularity. It went totally viral. It spawned a bunch of literary agents approaching me to turn that into a book. Of course, the obvious book title was The Book of Awesome after the blog. And because that book did well, the world has then since conspired to fit me into a two-dimensional brand. <laughs> of awesome. Exactly. I guess there's worse words you could get pegged with for life. So you're probably the only person ever to use the I'm feeling lucky button on Google. Um, <laughs> that must have been before DuckDuckGo. So we will all uh, forgive you uh, for, for using the, the Google search engine instead of the DuckDuckGo search engine. But uh, what, can you take us back to this moment where you're deciding to start this blog? Like what, what was going on in your head that, that made you decide that that was going to be your thing that was going to help you? Well, I was the son of immigrants. So my mom came from Nairobi, Kenya. My dad came from Amritsar, India, and they settled in Canada in the late 1960s. Why do I mention that? Because when I grew up, I was born in 1979. I'm 40 years old at the time of our recording. I had their sense of wonder in my house. They were like just as fascinated by snow and like the computer and like the idea that you could go skiing, like as I was. And I didn't realize that that was special. But the point is, I learned a deep sense of awe from my parents, especially my father. I mean, I was just over at his house the other day, David, and he looked at my iPhone. He's like, it's like the whole world in your hands. I mean, my dad's 75. He talks like he's five, right? So I had the sense of awe. And meanwhile, as you know, everything else that's published in the news media, on the radio, in you know, any magazine you look at, any, any, it's just like, it's all negative. Every single thing is negative. And I was feeling so negative. So I had the sense of awe baked into my core from a child, yet I was surrounded by the negativity in my personal life, complemented by the negativity in every single thing I was reading. The news is always negative. TV shows are always negative. I was like, I got to just figure out something positive somehow. So my inclination was 1,000 awesome things. And if you read the original blog post, they are quite acerbic. They're quite sarcastic because I wasn't feeling great. So it was hard for me mm. to write positively. You know, only over time did the blog become a little bit of a sort of like a little sun in my galaxy, a dented place where friends started sending me suggestions. People would leave me comments. Even some of the examples I just read to you were all from other people saying, can you, can you write this one? Can you write that one? And suddenly I had a place. And I, I, I kind of like period, like I suddenly had a place to put my brain that wasn't as negative as my real world was at the time. Can you provide any insight into, you know, as you imagined the future unfolding as you were creating this blog, what you thought it was going to be or what, what is, uh, you know, because you could have just opened a text file on your computer and, and written things that were awesome or, or had a journal and you chose to, to make it public. What was going on there? Yeah, you know what? This is really interesting and something that I don't know the answer to because I've been asked that before and I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I made it public because deep down I was really hoping for connection and community and I left the comments open and I mean open, like People could write nasty stuff and occasional like spam things would fly in asking everyone if they wanted to enlarge their penis. I didn't 
delete those things. <laughs> I just let them ride. And I think it's partly because when I put the blog out there, I mean, nobody read it. 50,000 blogs are started a day. I always make the joke that my mom forwarded it to my dad and my traffic doubled, you know, overnight. <laughs> by the time it reached 10, uh, by the time it reached 10 posts, so I'm, I'm talking two weeks in now, like I said, I publish it every weekday. So a thousand weekdays is about four straight years. I then sent an email to all my friends and family that called Honest to Blog. And I said, dear friends and family, they were all BCC'd, of course. You don't want the dreaded, like, you know, weird reply uncle all, reply all. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And and I said, I got a new blog. If you'd like to check it out, go to www.1000awesomethings. I think at the time it was still .wordpress.com. Sign Neil. And what was interesting then, David, is friends I hadn't talked to in years, people I'd somewhat lost touch with, different types of friends, became regular or frequent commenters on my blog. You, you never know when you're making art who in your own personal life is going to resonate with it. I mentioned that as someone who's also, like I started a podcast now, literally none of my friends and family who followed my blog are on my, listen to my podcast, but a whole new suite of random people that mm. are close to me are listening to my, it's, you know what I'm saying? So then what I'm trying to say is the blog then became some connective tissue. My friend Fred and I, who had lost tons from like summer camp years ago, became a loyal commenter I then went to visit him in San Diego because I had nothing better to do. I'm living in a tiny bachelor apartment with no friends and no wife suddenly. and no, Like I'm literally like, I can see you. I can come visit. And it put us back in touch. So I think part of the public nature of my posting, I always allow alliteration, as you can tell, <laughs> is, is like a desire, like kind of like a cry for help in a way. You know, not as strong as that, but I'm, I was just looking for people to kind of see me in yeah. some sense. So when you're looking for awesomeness, you're looking for some kind of positivity in your life and you're grasping for that and somebody leaves a mean or negative comment, how did that affect you? Yeah, so my first ever blog post on the blog uh, on 1000awesomethings.com was called Number 1000 Broccoflower. And I call it the strange mutant hybrid child of nature's ugliest vegetables. It is, for those that don't know, the green cauliflower. And I just pulled it up as I'm talking to you right now. The very first comment is from my friend Fred. Ah, oh, trusty broccoli flower. Up there on my list of favorite mutants along with the Liger slash Tygon, the Pumitard, the Z-Donk, the Wolfin, and the Donatello. And then somebody else replies, oh, it looks like it's from outer space. Somebody, so see, these, these weren't that nasty. Now, did I get some nasty comments? Yeah, but by virtue of the fact that my blog was called 1000 Awesome Things and I'm writing about positivity, it just, those people, the trolls didn't hang out that long. They might just make fun of my writing or make fun of me, but I even was closeted about my identity for about the first mm. three to six months. I didn't say if I was a guy or a girl. I didn't say where I lived. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't author the site in any clear way. My name was not on the site in any clear way. I was still kind of hiding, even though it was public. So I guess I was shielding myself until I could see that largely the comments were, for the most part, kind. And then I started to occasionally kind, kind of come out of the the closet there publicly. And that, by the way, side note, has been a really long, slow process to me. When do I say my name? When do I say my last name? When do I say where I'm from? My first book, The Book of Awesome, doesn't have a picture of me in it. I said to the publisher, do not put a picture of me. I don't want anyone to know what I look like. I don't want them to hedge these awesome things on like a skinny Indian guy from Canada's awesome things. I, I just, I hid behind it. And only over time, 10 years I'm talking, has I, have I got comfortable slowly, slowly, slowly revealing more of myself all the way up to now where I probably reveal too much of myself today. Why do you think it took so long? 
I mean, the internet's a scary place, right? Like there's all of us are all right there talking. Anyone that could, anyone can trash you. And I was already fairly shattered. Like I was already pretty broken. When I got my wife telling me she didn't want to be married to me, like, look at the stories I was telling myself were, I'm not pretty. I'm not handsome. I'm not married. I'm not marriage material. I'm, I'm going to be alone forever. I won't have children like I want to. I don't, I no longer own a home as I'd always dreamed of. I have to sell my, so you see, I was already pretty shattered. And so the idea of revealing more of myself to get kicked or viewed or even judged in any way was scary to me. And I, I, I'm sure I still hide parts of myself that I'm, either not aware of or I'm kind of consciously keeping private. Right. And that this is exactly what I was wondering about, you know, in encountering that those first bits of negativity, et cetera, is that you're in this extremely, I guess, damaged or shattered as you called it, state. And you're you're telling yourselves yourself all these things about yourself. And then somebody comes to your blog and affirms that that can be destabilizing. Yeah, exactly. So what I had to do was in the background, raise my own confidence. Okay. So I had to start slowly dating again. I personally had to, I went, started going to the gym. I started like taking my health a little bit more seriously. I started, you know, I had to get myself back up. I mean, part of the reason I wrote this entirely new book on resilience is because I learned that I was not very resilient. And when I was, when I went through the loss of a marriage, I was shattered. Like I, I, I literally took a long time to kind of process that. The blog was part of the salvation, of course, but there was also regular therapy. There was also the benefit of time. There was also my parents who let me sleep on their couch whenever I like wanted to be with someone for the weekend. So there's all these ingredients that go back to lifting ourselves up. Right. And I, I learned something from a previous conversation I had in the podcast with uh, Dr. Robert Lustig basically about how pleasure and happiness are these two neurologically distinct phenomena. And it makes me wonder about, I mean, I've done a a similar exercise, not of writing awesome things, but maybe just writing things I'm grateful for at the end of the day. And, And it seems like there's this cultural confusion about what happiness is. And it seems like people often equate happiness with pleasure and by extension of that, I would say that awesomeness is maybe what we'd imagine to be awesome might be a lot of things that we imagine to be pleasurable. So was there ever a point where you realized that, oh, this raw, raw, raw awesomeness thing is is taking me to a place that is pleasurable, but uh-huh. isn't contentment, isn't happiness? Like, is awesomeness sometimes overrated? Is average, mundane, or good underrated? Mm-hmm. These are great questions. So here's the thing. I, my whole principle of the blog when I started 1000 Awesome Things, and I did get railed upon by a couple of radio interviews. You're reminding me now, people that said like, you know, you're bastardizing the English language. How dare you use such a gigantic, revered kind of biblical term to describe, you know, wearing warm underwear from out oh, of wow. the dryer. You know what I mean? How, how could you compare that to like the site of the Grand Canyon? You know, and uh, even the Toronto Star, which is the, the biggest newspaper in Canada where I live called said that I was responsible for single-handedly bleaching the English language. I think they called me that. It's in my Wikipedia. That's quite accomplishment. Yeah, exactly. And so the way I looked at it was this. We are alive for 30,000 days. Period. 
full stop, that's the average lifespan. It's not that many, it's super small. And when you ask people what will, what will stand out in their lives, typically they mention the baby screeching in the delivery room, the father-daughter dance at their wedding, the wide eyes and cameras flashing as they cross the graduation stage. My point is most of us, when asked what were the highlights of your life, we will point to a series of, what, half a dozen, maybe a dozen sort of big moments. However, my point in the whole underpinning of my blog and really the underpinning of all my work on intentional living now is that in this tiny, short, fragile life, it's, it's actually kind of a waste to think of only five or 10 things as the poignant highlights of your life when in fact, every single one of those 30,000 days is full of, if you just look at them closely and look for them closely, a thousand tiny, simple pleasures that actually give you joy and happiness. For example, when I wrote the blog post, watching cream go into coffee, and I Mm -hmm. compared it to watching like the Milky Way galaxy forming, I got hundreds of comments, people saying like, oh my gosh, I do this every day. And it's a tiny second of pleasure that I never knew anyone else appreciated. And I actually, it makes me appreciate it more. Similarly, when I wrote about wiping off the gigantic kind of towel of lint off your dryer, you know how satisfying that feels? Like people were like, whoa, I never thought about that. That's amazing. And I felt good because I thought like, oh, good. That means now for like the next 500 times you do that in your life, you will appreciate it. You might not appreciate as much as a baby getting put on your chest after delivering it, but you will see it. You will, you will co- connect with it. And we don't know what life is. We don't know why we're here. We don't know what the universe is. We don't know why the universe was here. We don't know what was before the universe, what's after the universe, what's above or below the universe. We got no idea. And so all we got is today. All we got is now. All we got is this. This matters. This counts. It's worth pausing on. It's worth noticing. And the whole point of my first piece of art in the world was it's worth appreciating. Mm -hmm. And did you know that at the time or has that emerged over time? Well, like I said, when I with my dad, it was like he was so fascinated by all these little things that like I just thought that everyone thought this way. And so I mentioned some of the blog posts, like I would say hitting a string of green lights when you're late for work, snow days. And I like delineated like the sort of like five different levels of snow day where you're like, you know, it's coming or it's a surprise or you know what I mean? All these things. And I just felt like as I wrote them, literally as the words formed in the WordPress software, then as I was writing them, the depth came out, the complexity came out, the observation came out inside my brain because I was pausing on something like a snow day for like three hours. Do you know what I mean? Like how often, you don't think about snow days for more than like 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it for three hours, you can think about all the different kinds, what you do, what it's like, what it feels like. And that turns into a thousand word blog posts. And I think it was either that post or old dangerous playground equipment was one of my first one that went kind of viral. And it was, it just, that's what kind of made the thing work is that I was just pausing on something simple for a longer time than we usually get it. And how do you think about focus? I think that a lot of me, my audience, you asked about my audience before we started. I was like, yeah, scatterbrains, uh, but <laughs> not, I'm not, not uh, describing myself at all. You know, when I look at the work that you are doing, I'd say that like the superpower that I would like to be able to get from you would be, I, I suppose, focus or commitment because 
you have a very eclectic approach to the things that you're doing. You, you, you draw from a wide array of sources and, but you're, you're doing this awesome, 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 awesome. And then you also have this great podcast, three books, and you're making these big commitments right up front too. Like you started a thousand awesome things. You didn't just say, I'm going to just start a blog. You said, I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to write a thousand things that are awesome. You didn't just start a podcast. You started a podcast and said, I'm going to, over the next 15 years, find out the 1,000 most formative books of all of my heroes. I, do you, are you naturally wired to make big focused commitments like that? How do you, where do you get the, the, the guts to say, I'm going to do a podcast for 15 years? Well, thanks for noticing that, by the way, because I don't think I've talked about this really before. But here's the thing. First of all, you've pointed out that I'm obsessed with the number 1,000. <laughs> Tangentially, you pointed that out because I actually am obsessed with the number 1,000. I don't know if you know this, David, but that's the average lifespan. I, I mentioned it was 30,000 days a little bit earlier. Well, there's 30 days in a month. So by definition, we are alive for about 1,000 months. Interestingly, we are also awake for about 1,000 minutes a day. That's the average amount of time people are awake for a day, which works Mm -hmm. out to like 16 and two-thirds hours. So I find this number very interesting. I think about it a lot in terms of my life spent. Every month that goes by, I'm like, well, that was one one more. I got a 1,000 total-ish, you know? And so a 1,000 awesome things was my first stab at putting a project kind of aligned with that sort of mathematical sensibility. And my podcast, Three Books, was another one. Here's the two little dirty little secrets about you commenting on the grandness of my big goals. Number one, I know that I won't do it if I don't set it up as something I have to do. Meaning that the first blog post on my website was number 1,000. It wasn't number one. It was number 1,000. Then the next one was number 999. It wasn't number two. I purposely made it a countdown so it could, could create a natural momentum and crescendo towards the finish line because over those four years, David, I wanted to quit that blog so many times. I mean, how many times I get home from the bar on a, on a you know, a late on a Thursday night at like midnight, I'm supposed to post the thing at midnight and I had nothing written for the next day. Now here I have to start writing one and editing and looking for pictures. Now I'm up till three in the morning. There's so many times I wanted to just pause it or quit it. But the system appealed to my deep, whatever, a, a desire to satisfy, you know, <laughs> I have this thing where I want to please, I guess, myself or the system. So I just satisfied it. Similarly with my, my podcast, yes, you know, I interviewed, say, Judy Bloom is one of the first people I interviewed. Flew down to Florida, sat down with her in her bookstore in, in Key West, I asked her which three books. Guess what? Her books were like number 990, number 989, number 988. I put them on my website, threebooks.co, but it's creating a natural progression and attention and a crescendo towards the finish line. That's the first dirty little secret. The system creates the output. The output isn't like, I'm not making such a great output. It's like, I'm forcing myself to make it. And then the second dirty little secret is I could quit if I wanted to. Like what I'm saying is the release valve for me is if the podcast bombed and I hated it and I couldn't get over the editing and blah, 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 I would just quit. And maybe not that many people would really notice because the internet is just so full and so stuffed and getting fuller and stuffeder on an, at an accelerating rate that I just believe in the concept of your art can go poof really easily. And that's a good thing. 
because then it lets you go on to the next thing. The only thing finite really is your time and your attention. So I set it up so that it could be a success. But if it's not, I would have just run away from it. Yeah, I think this is a phenomenon that I like to call motivational judo. But it's interesting (laughs) because it wouldn't work for me. If I were to say, well, maybe now I could do it. But, you know, before I became a consistent creator, if I, somebody said to me, you're going to write a blog with a thousand posts and you're going to start with number 1,000. You're going you're gonna to work your way down. I'd say like, well, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to make the commitment in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wonder where the, you know, th- this is why everybody's different. There, there, there's something yeah. in your personality that, that makes uh-huh. you willing to start it. Yeah, there's a great book on this personality traits by Gretchen Rubin, actually, uh, author of The Happiness Project. She wrote it recently. I don't know if you've read it or heard of it called The Four Tendencies. And she really paints a nice portrait of the fact that some people are what she calls upholders, like she is. Some people are rebels, which potentially you are. Some people are questioners, which I think is where I netted out on. And some people are the fourth thing, which I cannot remember the name of. But the point is that we naturally sift into these little piles of how we respond to things like deadlines or goals or someone telling us to do something. And we're all different. So you have to know yourself more than anything else and know how you'll respond to the system that you create. We're going to take a quick break. One hard learned lesson I've learned over the past 12 years is that the more you can automate in your business, the more mental energy you have left over to be creative. That's why I'm glad to have HoneyBook sponsoring the show. HoneyBook is an online business management tool. Now, what does that mean? I'll tell you what that means. HoneyBook organizes all of your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices. It even integrates with the services you already use like Gmail, QuickBooks, and Google Calendar. It puts everything in one place. It saves you a ton of mental energy. Best of all, HoneyBook can automate your business processes. You can automate things like appointment requests, follow-ups, and thank yous when things happen in your business. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit honeybook.com slash loveyourwork. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. Go to honeybook.com slash loveyourwork for 50% off your first year. That is honeybook.com slash loveyourwork. If you're having trouble hiring the best talent for your business, it's probably because the best talent already has a job. The best talent is never looking for a job. So how do you get your job post in front of the best talent if they're not looking? You go somewhere, they're already spending time. You know that LinkedIn is a hot social platform for professionals. You heard Robbie Yved talking about it a few episodes ago. So what if you could get your job openings in front of the best professionals, the ones who are already spending time on LinkedIn? You can do exactly that with LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has the deepest, most up-to-date, most insightful data set on professionals. They use that data to match your job opening to qualified professionals. Many of them aren't even actively looking for a new job because they have great jobs because they're top talent. LinkedIn will promote your job opening across their platform. They will target the professionals who are the best fit for that job. I think it's brilliant because the best talent isn't actively looking for a job, yet LinkedIn is still able to reach them. So it's no wonder that a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash loveyourwork. Again, that's linkedin.com slash loveyourwork to get $50 off 
your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So you had this sort of forcing function that made you think about awesome things all day long. And now you have this other forcing function where you're speaking to, I guess, two people a month because your podcast is interestingly enough released on the full moon and the new moon. And I don't trust the Gregorian calendar. (laughs) And it's making nobody can explain daylight savings to me. And why? How many days does February have? You you can get confused. The thing's 500 years old. The lunar calendar's 30,000 years old. You want to know what time it is? Look up. There's a clock in the sky beaming at you the whole, like your whole eternity. That's what I trust. It's, but what does that look like on the the interface for uh, Libsyn or whoever it is that you publish with? They hate me. <laughs> they, they hate me. I, I literally do time every single podcast launch to the exact minute of every single new moon and full moon. I am doing that all the way up to September 1st, 2031, when my podcast will reach, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of... Uh, climax with with book number one but yeah it doesn't really fit nicely <laughs> into the itunes algorithm i'm sure so are you finding that what i'm what i'm getting at is that i see these these forcing functions in these projects that like you said it's the system that's making you do these mm-hmm. things that are good for you is that what's are you doing that intentionally and are there other areas of life where you do that yeah, there are. And, and ultimately, I'm a really lazy person. I'm actually, it doesn't seem like I'm lazy. Here I am prancing around the world giving speeches and writing books and blah, blah, blah. But actually, the way I like to spend my days is I like to just wander around. I smiled and, and I laughed when you said scatterbrain because I think of myself that way. My wife would laugh at the fact that I leave like little piles of notes to myself all over the house in every room. And whenever she wakes up in the morning, there's like three things written on my bedside table. I, I kind of like that. And I kind of like being that way. In fact, I carve out, and this is one of the chapters in my, in my, in my book on resilience, uh, You Are Awesome. I carve out one untouchable day a week, meaning one entire day every single week. I do, I have no contact with anybody all day including my wife, my kids, anyone on the internet, no phone, nothing, all day, a full day, every week. And that day is imperative to my creative process and really any, any good art that I end up putting out. But you asked about systems. Okay, here's another one. I don't give myself access to any of the podcast statistics, meaning I don't know how many... Da- I mean, I kind of can ask my assistant on a sort of interim basis, can, can she log into Libsyn? But I say to her, don't ever give me the password. Because if I had that password, I would get obsessed with it. I would, and we know this from research, the int- extrinsic motivators always block intrinsic motivators. I, I got hooked on this drug before. My blog, I got hooked on the blog stats. I got hooked on the number of hits. I got hooked on the bestseller list. When my book was on the bestseller list, Book of Awesome, I was like hooked on it. I was like, what can I do to fuel that fire? How can I go to sign books in every bookstore? How can I have an event where I just wave my speaking fee? I'll just do it for like a thousand books. Cause I, boom, and it's on the bestseller list again. Like I, I got sucked into that trap. So with this podcast, three books, I was careful. I put no ads, no sponsors, no promotions. I don't give myself access to the stats. And yet I lazily get to kind of hang out with, you call them my heroes, like people I want to sort of chill with. I mean, I just did an interview with the Korean uh, woman who runs the grocery store at the corner of my street because I find her story of how she learned to read from Anne of Green Gables fascinating. Mm. (laughs) So, but I have permission to do that because I'm not beholden to any one sort of like dictum of how much CPMs I'm charging or how much like 
downloads I have to earn some traffic. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I don't want to focus on that. So I make myself kind of lazily get to kind of wander around the world in a way or wander around my mind and like go wherever my natural artistic tendencies lead, which maybe is a product of having some early success or maybe it's just me realizing a little bit more that that's kind of what matters. I love that you don't have access to your stats. I wish I could do the same thing myself because <laughs> it's it's uh, it's agonizing looking at your podcast stats. But I find with my podcast, I love that it, it forces me to read some books. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of books that I read that are not for my podcast guests, but you're basically having to read six books for every moon cycle. We'll just say every month. Um, sorry, but, but six books a month, yeah. does that, does that leave room for any other reading? So it's funny because my massive reading consumption rate on books is actually not a product of my podcast, but it's causal to my mm. podcast. Meaning that uh, if you go back three years, David, I was a news junkie. I subscribed to two newspapers, five magazines. I coasted that stuff superficially all the time. I was working for the CEO of Walmart. And part of my role was to give him like a news briefing on top of my news junkie natural tendencies. And so I read like five books a year. And I say that almost embarrassingly because I took, you know, I read a book on like a vacation. I had a couple slow burners on my bedside table. And then what happened is like basically my wife, Leslie, so flash forward, I, a few years later, I got remarried. I'm now married to a beautiful woman named Leslie. And we have three little tiny boys here in Toronto. She's like, why don't you read books? I'm like, ah, oh, who's got the time? She's like, Neil, you're a right, like, you write books. I'm like, well, I don't have time to read them. <laughs> and she's like, oh my God. She's like, you got to read more. And it turns out that over the next year, I went from reading five books a year to 50. I was so proud of myself that on a flight home one day, I whipped open like a Word document and I wrote a little article called Eight Ways to Read a Lot More Books. And I summarized the eight little systems I had put in place, consciously, maybe subconsciously, to dramatically 10x my reading rate. And they were simple things, very simple things. I installed a bookshelf at my front door. I canceled my newspaper and magazine subscriptions. I told people, I have a monthly book club, which means every month I send an email of which books I've read. So I, I now am sort of beholden to, again, it's another system that forces a behavior. I now have to tell people what I'm reading. So I'd be embarrassed if I was like, hey guys, nothing this month, <laughs> see you later. You know what I mean? So I had this email newsletter. That email thing has grown to like 30, 40,000 people. So I was like, I got to tell people what I'm reading. And I wrote it up. I submitted it to Harvard Business Review. This is the first ever article I've ever written for Harvard Business Review where they just published it. Like they just, I mean, there was like two edits and like it was about a comma or something. And then they published it. And Harvard Business Review has a very like famous, deep, repeated back and forth editorial process. It went viral on the website. They must have seen something in it that I didn't see. It became the number one article on all of HBR.org for I believe all of 2017. To this day, if you type in like how to read more books into Google, I think it's like the top top nice. one or two or three hits, right? Now it's nice, but like it goes to HBR. It doesn't go to me. But but they put it into a book and I was like, wait a minute. This isn't an awesome article because Neil's so awesome. This is an awesome article because everyone wants to read more. The major insight I had was everyone feels that way, that they want to read more, but they can't because they don't have time. So if this really is a gigantic human desire, 
and I've kind of done it a little bit myself, well, I want to be an evangelist. So I started the podcast to ultimately find the 1,000 most formative books in the world because, as you may or may not know, the publishing industry believes that this is the root kind of question underpinning the entire industry and nobody knows the answer, which is why they publish a million books every year. And that's why things like Oprah's Book Club are so popular because it's like finally someone's curating <laughs> like a tiny little list of what we should read. Bill Gates does Gates Notes. And these things are so popular because we want people to tell us what to read. We don't know what to read. We don't know what we should read. We, are, we just pick up whatever's in a pile at the airport. And then when we don't like it, we think it's because we don't like reading. Well, actually, it's because we didn't find the book that actually can meaningfully change our life. This entire new passion in me that's inflamed itself over the last couple of years was further emblazoned. I'm making up words at this point. It was, it was, the, the flames went further when I discovered the research. And the research says, when you read books, especially fiction, especially literary fiction, you open up the mirror neurons in your mind, the parts of your brain responsible for empathy, compassion, understanding, essentially all the emotionally, emotional intelligence skills that good humans, good leaders, good citizens, good husbands, wives, sons, and daughters are trying to build. There's more studies on this than I can even name, but there's Emory University did MRI scans. When you read, unlike when you watch TV or watch a movie, you use more of your brain, which you may not be surprised to hear, because you are the director. You come up with the characters' voices, what the room looks like, what they're wearing. You make all that up. So you open up all kinds of language centers and things like that. So I've actually, the science has now convinced me that this is really the ultimate source to developing emotional intelligence. And when I speak to leaders of organizations, I get up on stage and I'm wearing my fancy suit and they say, what do I do to build up EQ? I say, how many books are you reading? And they say, none. And they kind of say it proudly. Like, I don't got time. Or maybe I read like seven habits of highly effective people or something. I'm like, no, no, you need to be reading fiction. Hmm before bed, just 20 pages. Because it. the quote that I always say to people is, a, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. And then when they all like stare in awe at me, like, wow, that's such a profound quote. I say, and then, and then I say, I stole that quote from Game of Thrones, which I did. But it's, but it's cool because really when you're another gender in another country in another time period, you can be like a Japanese girl in the 1600s in a book. And you will know what that feels like because you will inhabit that conscience for a while. And that gives you a sense of living much greater and wider than your own single dimensional experience. Oh, wow. There's so much there. Um, I love all the ways that you got yourself to read. I remember one of mine was I bought a lamp that cost $600. <laughs> I love that. I bought a really expensive bathing suit to force myself to swim. Oh, that's a thing that you and I have in common is that we learn how to swim in our in our 30s. Yeah, exactly. And then if you buy expensive bathing suit, you put it in your uh, carry on suitcase forever. You're like, when you get to the hotel, you're like, well, I guess I should mm -hmm. go. Otherwise, I wasted all this money on this fancy suit. Is that what you did with the lamp? Yeah, it was how do you prevent loss aversion, I guess, or, or is a cognitive, using cognitive dissonance to your advantage. I, I bought a very nice, well-designed, beautiful lamp with a wonderful dimmer switch. And I started buying paper books. I, I don't, the, the lamp is at, at my, my dad's house now. I don't even have it with me, but the, the habit of reading ex exists. It turned reading into this sensual sort of experience, not to mention the fact that I had to, justify the $600 I spent 
on a reading lamp. So that was one thing that I did. And I remember you saying something in, uh, you talk about this a lot, actually, in, on three books. Book shame. Talk to us about mm. book shame. Yeah, okay. So here's the other thing about books. Most of us uh, buy books that we don't read and then proudly display them on our shelf. So, for example, I don't want to name books. I don't want to insult any author, but like think of a natural big academic tome that like everyone's got on their shelf, but nobody's read it. That's what I want to kind of avoid. And I don't think there's anything embarrassing about a sophisticated woman reading only YA or somebody's telling me that one of their, I, I even say when I have guests on my show, I said, I want the uglier books, the ones that turned you into you, the ones that made you who you are, shifted a value, confirmed an ideal, altered a direction. And I'm, I'm about to interview um, Molly Bloom tomorrow. Uh, she's the author of Molly's Game, turned into a movie. And she's like, oh, one of my books is like, choose your own adventure. I'm like, perfect. No one's picked a choose your own adventure book. She's like, really? Are you sure? Because it's kind of like a juvenile book. I think it's mostly for boys. I'm like, no, that's exactly what I want. What did it, what did it shape in you? And I haven't conducted the interview yet. But she's like, well, it helped me realize that I could choose my own adventure. It helped me realize that I could decide which way my path went. And growing up in rural Colorado, like I thought it was like one, I could only do one thing. And I was like, wow, that's what I'm talking about. And no one should be embarrassed of any book ever. And I want to eradicate book shame and book guilt because they're pervasive, unfortunately, in the publishing and book industry. There's a snootiness to them. When I interviewed Seth Godin, and I know he's, uh, I know you guys are, uh, are friends, he said to me, the book industry is by ladies and gentlemen for ladies and gentlemen. And I never got that when he said it, but basically he's saying like, there is like a, there's a, there's an air about the entire book industry. And then we ask ourselves, well, why did one in three Americans never read a book last year? And it's like, we're not publishing enough stuff that they mm -hmm. can read, that they don't feel, no wonder the subtle art of not giving a fuck has sold 6 million copies. With in the no States. mainstream media coverage, by the way. That's and it's exactly, 8 million. Okay, there you go. And, and it's like, because it's bright, it's orange. It, the title sounds like the way someone would talk. The guy who wrote it sounds like someone at your friend's house. Like, it's so accessible and it's about concepts that are super deep, but it's so accessible that we read it. I think access is the primary goal of a good book, first of all. I mean, it's easy for me to say I'm, I wrote the book of awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, my books are, you know, you could, you could say they're overly simplistic, but I'm always saying to people, no, I grew up on Mad Magazine and Archie Comics and I, I devoured reading as a child, but if you look at what I read, it was like stuff that was easy to read because it welcomed me in. Mm -hmm. It didn't judge me as a reader. It didn't use words I didn't understand. Yeah, I like what you said about, uh, or I remember Seth talking about this idea that he had these ideas for books that he was trying to sell to book publishers. And then he realized, oh, I thought that they wanted to make money. It turns out they, they want their beliefs to be confirmed. So I started wearing you know, blazers to meetings and started selling books all of a sudden because they have uh, a certain air about them that they, that they want to uphold. And it's funny that book shame, that, that word just resonates so much because there is so much book shame, not just about the books that we read, but about our level of commitment with the books, because it's interesting. We will say to ourselves, well, I don't really have the time to read a whole book and so instead, I'll just snack on Instagram or, or Facebook. But 
feeling like we need to finish a book every time we start it is another form of book shame, right? Exactly. And so was the idea that, so Mark Manson, we just talked about him. He wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I had him on my podcast and he was like, I recommend people skip chapters. I recommend people look at the table of contents. They're like, okay, there's 12 chapters in here. I like these three. Yes. And then you're done the book. I recommend, you know, um, like there's, we are taught from a very young age. I mean, at, children don't have this problem. I mean, my kids have a big children's bookshelf beside their beds and they read the way I think everyone should read. They pick random stuff on it. They leave it on the floor. They sleep with them in their bed. They turn to random pages. They rip a page out. They put it on their wall. Like they just, they, they eat books. You know what I mean? But as we get older, we're taught through the, you know, industrial, <laughs> industrial age education system that you get assigned the great Gatsby. You read from page one to page 240. You analyze every chapter as you go. You look for metaphors and allusions. It's like, come on, that's fine. And don't get me wrong. I love a good literary yarn. I read a lot of David Mitchell and Mohsen Hamid. And I read like, I love like Alice Monroe. I love that stuff. But the thing is, it's like, you don't gotta. That's the point. And so... I agree with you. There's so much book shame and book guilt that there. I actually just got a letter from somebody that sent it in to me, and they, and and the guy says to me, Neil, I think your your value system on three books is working because my kid just yelled at me, Dad, stop book shaming. <laughs> and I know he got that from the fact that I explained it, explained the idea of of the podcast to him. And so, yeah, I want to make I want to make books like. I believe single tasking is the new multitasking. I believe we have too much screen time. I believe we are on our cell phones too much. I believe that our eyes are going to burn if we stare at them too long. I believe that the melatonin production in our brain goes down when we look at bright screens before bed. So I believe in books. They are still the single greatest compressed form of human knowledge we have ever invented. You can go deeper, wider, have more emotional complexity in a book than anything else. I just want people to love them as much as I do. And that's why I've become this like, you know, as you can hear, <laughs> I've become like a crazy evangelist for something I didn't even do myself three years ago. And I'd like to point out that I think that the force on the other side of book shame is, is news shame. You, you said that you stopped reading the news, you stopped subscribing to, you know, magazines, newspapers and stuff. And, and the, the thing that perpetuates this unhealthy obsession with reading the news and scattering our attention and getting sucked into negativity is this silly idea that if you don't do that, you're somehow an irresponsible person. And it's being perpetuated. Oh, you are like my new best friend. Because I, in, in, so I wrote this new book. It's all about resilience. It's called You Are Awesome. In it, I even had a little sidebar talking about how I don't read the news and no one should and blah, blah, blah. And my editor, who I love and who's a great editor, wrote a sidebar comment saying, you know, this sounds like you're putting your head in the sand. It sounds like you're an ostrich. You know, it sounds like you're ignoring global warming. And I was like, oh my gosh, no. What I'm saying is, rather than superficially skimming everything in the world and assuming that that is somehow making you a better citizen, like, of course, in a, in a village of 8 billion people, there's going to be a big fire every day. So you're going to hear about it every day. I'm advocating for it going deeper on a smaller set of topics, becoming experts, learning mastery, you know, developing skill sets. I want to, at the end of my life, have a gigantic bookshelf of 
bookshelf of books of wisdom that I've accumulated rather than a big pile of yellowed New York Times from 20 years ago. Yeah. And if you want to be informed, first of all, you, you can be plenty informed solely reading books, but just get a Sunday newspaper, like find out like the most important things that happened for the week or something, if you must. So I've gone from news junkie to like total with like, I'm, I'm now like, you know, I've been sober, you know, on the news for a few years now, meaning that I consume zero yeah. news. And the funny thing is, David, if you were to raise current news topic of some kind to me, chances are good, I would still be able to dialogue with you and probably already know about it. And people say to me, well, if you don't read the news, how do you know about it? And it's like, because you, you know, people talk about it, there's something on a billboard, you walk by a news, like, you can't not. So it's not like you're going to fully untether yourself, even if you do. You're going to go to the gym. What does the gym have? 30 TVs on CNN. Like, you know, it, it, you can't just, uh, I'm not saying like, go live in outer space. I'm just saying if you purposely choose not to consume any news content, you will still know what's going on, yet you will have so much more time to focus on things that matter. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. We could go on for so much longer. I know that you've got to run and do a, a talk in a second here. Uh, I highly recommend that people check out your new book, You Are Awesome, and all the other awesome books that you have. And also listen to Three Books, which is a, an amazing podcast with people like Malcolm Gladwell and David Sedaris. I can't believe that you sat down and talked to those people in person, and Judy Bloom, like you mentioned. Any other places that you would like for people to get more of you? I love the art and the like. The stuff you're putting out into the world, David. So whenever I get to like the end of a really good conversation like this, I always feel like I'm talking like the end of the podcast club. Like people, oh, I love that at, idea. At, at two a.m. in the basement of some gym, or someone's driving a truck in Mongolia, listening. So if you made it this far and you feel like connecting with me. And I guess you, David, because I know you put yourself out there. I would say just email me. And my email address, I always just say it. If it's in like some random hidden place, let's drop it in. It's just neil at globalhappiness.org. N-E-I-L at globalhappiness.org. Drop me a line. I will read and write back. I hope I will read and write back, but I will plan to read and write back to every single thing I get. And you mentioned the the end of the podcast club, which is another one of the brilliant ideas from your podcast that I yeah. am insanely jealous that you thought of. <laughs> and I might have to copy you at some point. Do you know I have a second club? That must be, it's like the hidden track on the, on the CD where you have to go yeah. back before the first track. So I have an end of the podcast club, meaning that if you listen past the end of my podcast, there's a dead silence. And then I pop back in with like a playing a letter and a voicemail and I have a phone number, one eight three three read a lot And I play voicemails and we talk about the best word that was used in the chapter and so on. But then if you call my number, one eight three three read a lot and I don't want to say too much about this because this is my secret club, you then get a password which I won't say more about, but then you get, you get a password, you get an address, you have to mail cash through the mail and you get access to a special secret analog only club that I don't want to tell you more about, but it's like this totally other echelon of things I'm just doing for randomness and fun. Another thing for our listeners to do. Thank you so much, Neil Pashricha. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate you having me on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Neil Pasricha. It is time for the Love Your Work Listener Showcase. This month, we are featuring the work of June Gilbank. June designs patterns for really cool crocheted figurines. I have seen them. They really are amazing. 
check out June's work at planetjune.com. And then you can find June on all the socials at at planetjune. Would you like your work to be featured on the show? If you would like to be in a listener showcase, apply at kdv.co slash showcase. That is kdv.co slash showcase. How do you feel on Monday morning? Are you geared up and excited about the week ahead or are you struggling to get started? Either way, how would you like to start off your week with a dose of inspiration? I've collected more than 15,000 highlights studying the lives of history's greatest creators and each Monday in my Love Mondays newsletter, I share the very best nuggets of wisdom I've found. Sign up at kdv.co slash Mondays. That's kdv.co slash Mondays. At the core of being able to love your work is one question. Where does the money come from? Does the work you do make humanity better? Do the products you use help you grow as a person? That's why supporting Love Your Work on Patreon is good for all of us. I can focus on making a great show so you can become a better human. It's an honest exchange, value for value. This show costs hundreds of dollars a month to produce and bring to your ears. I invest my time and creative energy in making it, so I can't keep this show going without your support. Please support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Think of it like a coffee meeting. Is this show worth buying me a coffee a month? Head to patreon.com slash to join. You'll get perks such as early access to ad-free content, masterclasses, or office hours directly with me. That's patreon.com slash Or Overcast users, just tap on the dollar sign. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our top Patreon supporters, such as Jeffrey Mason. The theme music for Love Your Work is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc.